receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You're listening to the sermon series, Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom, preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. Before we begin, let's, uh, let's bow in prayer, prepare our hearts and minds. To Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can be here as a body, expounding your word, reading, and allowing it to change our lives and our hearts. God, I pray that this morning would be no different, that as we dive into your word, that it would change our hearts and our whole demeanor, our whole um, gathering today, the worship, the singing, the, the, the conversation, uh, the reading of your word, the teaching from your word, I pray that it would all be about you, God. I pray that your name would be exalted in everything we do. And, um, and I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. To start off this morning, um, I want to do a little bit of a review. Um, so to, to catch us up to where we're at now, uh, if you remember in our introduction to the book of Matthew, um, Pilgrim talked about how Matthew was primarily written to a Jewish audience, and the purpose of the writing of Matthew was to show that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the King that the prophets spoke about. And Matthew, remember, Matthew quotes uh, more the Old Testament more than any of the other Gospels with the words, this happened so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And then a couple of weeks ago, we studied the baptism of Jesus um, as the Messiah, as the King, and the confirmation of God saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then last week, we studied how immediately after Jesus was baptized, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted. And we studied how the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness was a pivotal moment where Jesus, the King, demonstrates his unwavering commitment to God's divine plan. And by Christ's example, we learn that the only escape from the enemy is to cling to the word of God. And now as we transition into this next section of Matthew's gospel, we find that this passage serves as a bridge, a bridge that connects the preparation of the king to the proclamation of his kingdom. And as we explore this passage, we're going to... Um, See the divine timing of John the Baptist's ministry phasing out and Jesus is now, now Jesus' ministry taking center stage. This is kind of a, a handoff, if you will, from John to Jesus. So Matthew picks up in verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And I'm going to stop there. And before we dive into this passage, I want to talk about the happenings between verse 11 and verse 12, because there is actually a gap that, John, or that Matthew doesn't actually deal with. See, Matthew's purpose was to reveal Christ as the king. 
but there's a gap. There's about a one-year period, actually, be, between the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness and where we're picking up here in Matthew, um, in the 12th verse of Matthew. So I want to do a quick overview of what's happened, and I believe that it enhances the understanding of what tri- Jesus is trying to inc- accomplish. Um, so going back, all of this can be recorded in the book of John. If you look at John chapter 1, starting in verse 19, you can follow along. I'm not going to read all of these passages, but we're going to go um, through these rather quickly, might, might I add. So I want to put up a map here. So all of this that's going on, this is happening between Jerusalem, you see there in the south, and then the Sea of Galilee in the north. Often in the Bible it says John, um, Jesus went up to Jerusalem from uh, Capernaum, but it's because of the height difference. There's a, it's a higher in elevation in Jerusalem. Um, and so sometimes I say he goes up and sometimes I say he goes down. And so it's, it can be very confusing because I'm confused sometimes. Okay. Okay. So this is, this is the area that, um, that Jesus is ministering and that the, this, um, this spot that I'm taking us through is. So, and it, just to, for reference, from Jerusalem to Capernaum there, the north of the Sea of Galilee, is about 85 miles. So through this, Jesus does a lot of walking. So we're starting in um, John chapter 1 in verse 19. 19. Now, remember that uh, Jesus is just coming out of, like last week we talked about the temptation in the wilderness. So this is where John is picking up. Uh, So John, after his tremendous victory over Satan, he goes back to where John is baptizing to to have John point him out as the Messiah. And he's there for three days. This is in Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So the first day, first day, John is being questioned by the religious leaders. Are you the Messiah? And John says, no, I am not the Messiah, but the Messiah is here. And then day two, John, with two of his disciples, um, he turns, he tells his disciples, Jesus is coming out of the wilderness. And he says, Look, the Messiah, that is the Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so the two disciples that are with him um, turn and start following Jesus. Andrew, one of those disciples, goes to Peter. His brother says, we have found the Messiah. We found him. And so John, um, Peter, and Andrew are now following him, John being the other disciple that was with um, with the, John the Baptist at that time. And they go and they go and they, they find um, Nathaniel and Philip. Remember that where uh, Jesus tells Nathaniel or um, says, you know, I saw you under the tree. And Nathaniel believes and he says, oh, you are the Messiah. And he says, you are going to see much greater things than these. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show you one right now. They go down from Jerusalem. They walk to Cana up in the north, about 85 or 75 miles up to Cana um, to the wedding. And you remember what happened at the wedding. He turns, Jesus turns the water into wine, his first unofficial miracle. Remember what he said, my time has not yet come, but his mom makes it and do it anyways. Um, So he provides the disciples and proves to the disciples that he is the Messiah. 
So from there, they go to Capernaum, his disciples, his mother and brothers along with them. Um, they're there for about uh, for a few days. Uh, it's about a 16-mile walk. Uh, and then they go back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, the Jewish Passover. And do we remember what happens there? About 85 miles, they walk from Capernaum to Jerusalem, and there Jesus cleansed the temple. You remember that story where he takes the cords and he wraps them together in a whip, and he drives out the money exchangers and the marketers from the temple courts. This is actually the first of two accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple. The second is recorded in Matthew chapter 21, um, and we'll get... We'll go through that when we get to it in our study of Matthew. But I find it fascinating that both at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus cleanses the temple, saying, you have made a mockery of my father's house. It was supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made it into a house of trade. Do you remember that the Jews were supposed to be a witness to the Gentiles? a witness that God was a God of all nations. They were supposed to be a blessing, but instead they were extorting the Gentiles for personal gain, and they were using the temple of God to do it. And to go even deeper, this whole event unfolded in what was known as the court of the Gentiles, an area designated outside of the temple where the Gentiles were allowed to make their offerings. They, were, they weren't allowed to go into the temple as the Jews were, um, this was also where the sacrificial animals were kept, so it stunk, it was loud, hardly a place of prayer for the Gentiles. And while Gentiles were permitted, if not encouraged, to contribute animals for temple sacrifices, the use of Roman coins was not permitted. So money changers thrived in this location, encouraged um, in, engaging in a profitable trade of exchanging foreign currencies. And Jesus comes in and he sees what's going on. And he's infuriated. Guys, do you remember what God intended for the court of the Gentiles to be? It's a trick question because there was never supposed to be a court of the Gentiles. There was never supposed to be a separation of the Jews and Gentiles in worship. Look at Numbers 15, verse 14 through 16. This is God giving instructions on how offerings were to be made. Numbers 15, 14 through 16 says, For the generations to come, whenever a foreigner or anyone else living among you presents a food offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, they must do exactly as you do. The community is to have the same rules for you and for the foreigner residing among you. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You and the foreigner will be the same before the Lord. The same laws and regulations will apply both to you and to the foreigners residing among you. And then moving forward, when King Solomon finishes the temple, you remember King Solomon built the temple. David was not allowed to finish the temple, but he gathered all the material. King Solomon finishes the temple. 
And then he's doing this dedication. He's dedicating the, the temple to the Lord. And there's this prayer that he does as he dedicates the temple to the Lord. By the way, remember, this is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ, the king. And he's watching what's happening in the temple that his great, great grandfather built. Listen to what King Solomon says as he dedicates the temple in 2 Chronicles 6, 32-33. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your, to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your, your dwelling place your dwelling place, do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know that your name, may know your name and fear you as do your own people, Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Isaiah, um, the prophet, also speaks of this um, worshiping in the temple and the foreigners. This is Isaiah 56 Six through seven, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to them and love the name of the Lord and to, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Can you see why the Messiah, the one, the incarnation of the blessing that the Jews were supposed to be was infuriated? Well, this was the initial and official presentation of himself to the Jewish leaders in the area. And Jesus goes around and um, continues to perform signs and miracles during this Passover festival. See that in John 2, 23 through 25. Jewish leaders weren't too happy about it, but there was, one, there was one of them that had some questions about what Jesus had done in the temple and what he was doing. And John 3, 1 through 21, records a wonderful conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus about being born again and not being able to see the kingdom of God unless one is born again. And this was a message for the whole world not just Israel. This conversation is where we get the most quoted evangelical verse of all times and gives us a little more insight to Nicodemus's question about what he saw in that court of the Gentiles, what he saw Jesus do. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, sometime after the Passover festival, Jesus and his disciples tra travel back down north to Anan, just outside of Salem, uh, about a 50-mile walk, and there Jesus and John do some tag-team baptizing. Um, John baptizing and sending people over to Jesus. Now, Jesus had been pointed out as the Messiah by John. 
He's gathered some of his followers. He'd gone to Cana, performed his first unofficial miracle, establishing who he was with his disciples. He proclaimed himself in Jerusalem. He'd cleansed the temple. And now it was time for him to begin his work. It was time for John to phase out and for Jesus to phase in. As John the Baptist said, in John chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. So Jesus travels back to Judea, 50 miles. And we don't hear much about what Jesus did while he was in Judea, but it was there that Jesus hears of the rest of John. And then Jesus makes his way north to Galilee. And you can read about the arrest of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verse 19, 20, why he was arrested. We're not going to get into that. Um, and now we're almost there, but there's a couple things that happen on Jesus' way to Galilee as his ministry begins. First, he, travel, he travels through an area called Samaria. You see it in the middle there. Um, Samaria, um, about 35 miles. He, he meets the Samaritan woman at the well. You remember the story there. She believes, and many people in the town believe. This is found in John 4, 1 through 42. I remember the Samaritans. They were the most despised people of the Jews. They were worse than the Gentiles because they were a mixed breed, intermarried with Gentiles. And it's interesting that the first person that Jesus spoke to after he officially begins his ministry is the people most despised by the Jews. I don't think it's an accident. Next, when Jesus gets to Galilee, the first place he goes is to his hometown in Nazareth, a Jewish area, and he proclaims himself as the Messiah. And what do they do? They reject him. They don't only reject him, but they want to kill him. They want to throw him off the cliff. So he leaves Nazareth, to live in Capernaum. And on his way, he goes through Cana again. Remember, we already went to Cana once where he performed his first miracle, unofficial miracle, water into wine. And he goes to Cana again. Now he performs his first official miracle. It's fitting that here, the official miracle is healing the royal official's son. That was a joke. Okay. So he heals the first, he feels, he heals the official son, a non-Jew. And now we're all caught up to Matthew 4, verse 12. The transition has been made. Preparation of the king has ended and the ministry of the king begins. Again, it's interesting that the first place he declares himself as a Messiah, a non-Jewish city, he's accepted. And many of the people believe in the city. And the first person he proclaims himself as a Jew to the Jews, they want to kill him. And the first person he performs a miracle on was a non-Jew. You think he was making a statement to his disciples leading up to his ministry in Galilee, in Galilee of the Gentiles? Absolutely. Now, again, Matthew leaves all that stuff out because Matthew's focus is the beginning of the king's ministry. 
So let's dive into this next section. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. The term Galilee here, it's a derived from the Hebrew root Galil, which means a circle. Galilee is, in fact, a region that forms a circular shape. Oh, the get map's gone. Sorry. It's not there anymore. A circular, imagine the Sea of Galilee. A circular shape around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the region is bordered on the east by the east bank, uh, modern-day Jordan, on the west by the, Me the Mediterranean Sea, north the mountains of southern Lebanon, and to the south uh, by Judea, the southern part of the ancient Israel. Um, but the heart of Galilee surrounds the Sea of Galilee, a width of about 25 miles and length of approximately 50 miles. So Galilee was, was renowned for its exceptional fertility, making it the most productive agricultural region in all of ancient Israel. The coastal plain, known as the Valley of Sharon, was particularly uh, fertile and bordered by the Carmel Mountain Range. According to historical accounts, Galilee was densely populated at over 3 million residents during the New Testament era. This was a place teeming with people. Galilee also, while part of the promised land, had a history marked by Assyrian influence, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, but there was a mixing of the different cultures and peoples. And the term Galilee of the Gentiles was used as a mockery of the area because of this mixed Jewish and non-Jewish element. Galilee was surrounded by foreign populations. The mixture of cultures made Galilee less traditional and more open to change, more open to innovation and even revolution. Galilee was strategically positioned as a crossroad of major trade routes. One prominent road, as we read, the way of the sea passed through Galilee, connecting the eastern and western parts of the world. Goods and travelers from the east and west would often pass through this region, resulting in a um, constant influx of people and ideas. God's choice of Galilee was no accident. The mentality of the people in Galilee were more open to change. The mixture of cultures in Galilee made it fertile ground for introducing new ideas. And the region was highly populated so that Jesus would have a significant audience for his teachings. And the trade routes passing through Galilee facilitated the spread of his me message to diverse audiences. But most of all, it was a dark place. Read on in Matthew, in verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, the land, the way by the sea, return, or beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This was a place ideal for Jesus to initiate his mission of bringing light to a world that needs salvation. And here we also see, we see again that phrase, so that what, 
was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Here specifically the prophet Isaiah. The quote is from Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, which reads, But there will be no gloom for who for for her who was in anguish. The former time, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep dark darkness, on them a light shone. To understand this prophecy, we have to have a little bit of a historical background. Um, this circular region, Galilee, was originally allocated to the tribes of Asher, Nephtali, and Zebulun in Joshua chapter 19 when God distributed the land among the 12 tribes of Israel. However, these tribes failed to obey, fully obey God's command to expel the Canaanites from the land. And as a result, Galilee began its existence with a mixed population and, and pagan influence. More than that, centuries later, in the 8th century BC, the Assyrians captured the entire region of Galilee, leading to the exile of all of its inhabitants. And in their absence, Strangers started to settle in Galilee. And it was also during this time that Ahaz was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Ahaz was a rotten king. And he led his people into awful, awful idolatry and practices. It was a very spiritually dark place. In Isaiah 8, just before this prophecy, the... Um, the prophet Isaiah addresses the spiritual and moral condition of the people of Israel during this time. This, the chapter describes a people who have turned away from God and they have sought out occultic practices and failed to rely on God and trust in God. 8.22 says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into darkness. It's crucial for us to understand this because it portrays the spiritual darkness of the people, which sets the stage for the prophecy that Matthew quotes. There is hope out of you, out of this dark place, will arise a light. There is hope. He is promised by the creator of the universe, and when Christ comes on the scene, he brings light to the neediest place with the neediest people, because the neediest people are the ones that are receptive to the truth. As the great physician Luke records in Luke 5, 31 through 32, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of, an, of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that brings us to our next verse. 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very same message that was preached by John the Baptist had now been passed to the king himself. Repent. We talked about this two weeks ago. 
when we talked about John the Baptist and repentance being the, one of the main themes throughout the Bible. It's the essence of the gospel, guys. When we, talk about the, when we talk about biblical repentance, we're not just talking about mere sorrow or regret for uh, our actions. It involves a profound change in an individual's heart. A profound change in their mind and in their direction of life. It's not just feeling sorry for past wrongs, but a complete and decisive turn away from our former life towards God. And this message revolves around the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' message, he declares, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The long-awaiting messianic rule and fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies are imminent. The people of that time were eagerly anticipating the Messiah, the arrival of the promised king who would establish God's kingdom on earth, bringing blessings, peace, and God's rule. Jesus was proclaiming that this kingdom is now within reach. Repent. Repent, guys. The message of repentance is still the same. Change your mind about who God is. And if you're somebody out there who has not put your faith in Jesus Christ, I beg you, I beg you, repent. Change your mind about who God is, who created you. Change your mind about who you are before him. Know that you are a sinner, as all of us are. But there is hope. That even though there is darkness, there is light. And that light is Jesus Christ. And the good news is that though we are all deserving separation from God in eternity, without him, in hell, that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Repent. Change your mind. Believe in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for your sins. And if you are a believer, we are to continue to repent. We are continue to continue to allow God to change our minds about who he is and who we are to be. As we read his word, we allow it to change us. This message that we must continue, it's a message that we must continue to practice in our lives. We continue to allow God to change our minds in Christ Jesus, to make us more like him. So now, Christ starts gathering his people and gathering his disciples. Matthew uh, 4, verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. We often have these great ideas of 
how God should do his work. Oh, we think if God would only save that person, oh, think of the great things that that guy could do for Jesus. Or if, oh, he would save this celebrity. Think of it, if a celebrity would teach about Jesus from, from the television. Man, think of how many people would come to know the Lord. Or we look inwardly. Oh, if only I had such and such of a, a degree or if I went to such and such school and had a theology degree or whatever, oh, then I could do great things for the Lord. Oh, I wish I had a testimony like so-and-so. Ah, his testimony is so moving. Oh, I don't have a testimony like that. You know what? All throughout history, God chooses just ordinary men. Ordinary men is willing to follow him willing to continue to repent and become more like Christ. Christ's disciples were no exception. Let me give you a little foreshadowing of these great men that God chooses here. In Matthew 8, 26, the disciples display a lack of faith when they woke Jesus in fear of the storm. In Matthew 14, 15 through 16, does disciples lack compassion when they suggested sending the hungry crowds away to find their own food? In Matthew 16, 21 through 23, Matthew showed, or Peter showed a lack of understanding when he rebuked Jesus for predicting his death, and Jesus corrected him. Mark 9, 14, the disciples were unable to cast out a demon from a boy. John 9, 2, they had poor theology, asking about who sinned to make this man blind. In Matthew 19, 13 through 15, they tried to turn away the children, but they were rebuked for it. They argued about who was going to be the greatest. They make requests for greatness in the kingdom. They fall asleep at prayer meetings. Peter denied Jesus three times, and they all scattered after his crucifixion. Even after the resurrection, even after the resurrection, there was, some of the disciples doubted that they had even seen Jesus. Jesus doesn't seek the greats among us. He sees the broken and those willing to change. And look at our passage here. I used to think that this was a great example of a believer who the first time he hears Christ's voice, he gives up everything to follow Christ and never looks back. But remember, this was not the first time that Jesus had encountered these disciples. Remember back in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, John the Baptist points out Jesus as the Messiah, and they start following him. And they believe, they believe that he's the Messiah and they start following, and they're following him and their journey begins. But we see here that they are back at their old life of fishing. Because why? For they were fishermen. And I don't know what transpired to lead them back to fishing. I don't know, maybe they were taking a break or they were starting to have doubts. I don't know. But Jesus calls them again. And this time, be fishers of men. They were being called to follow Jesus and to be made into fishers of men. But it was not a permanent departure from their profession as fishermen at this point. They followed him for a time to learn and become fishers of men. 
but they ended up back in their life of fishing. Maybe it was just a short-term mission trip for them, I don't know. But it was not the last time that Jesus encounters them at the Sea of Galilee. In Luke chapter 5, this is a different account. I do believe this is a different account. The third time that Jesus calls these men. Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Same setting, but this time Jesus gets in the boat with them. And you know the story. There's this amazing catch of fish. Not just, not one of those, oh, we've never caught this many fish before. This is awesome. This is miraculous. This is impossible. And they have to have their friends come over and help them lift the fish out of the boat. It's a miracle. And Peter sees this, and something in Peter snaps. In Luke 5, 8, it says to Peter, when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This process of repenting is a never-ending work of the Spirit in a believer's life. I don't know, like I said, I don't know what was going on in Peter's mind at this point, but I do know that most of us as believers at one point or another, have been on our knees asking, why, Jesus? Why do you even bother with me? But he does. He continues to change us. And he says to Peter, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. I have a task and a purpose for you, Peter. There is much learning that needs to be done, but I will accomplish what I began in you. Just as Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Jesus begins his ministry and disciples, the disciples begin their training. Matthew 4, 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, affliction among the people. Once again, the message was the same as John the Baptist's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. He's expounding on the work in the synagogues and preaching the heralding of the kingdom of heaven and is accompanied by miracles. And miracles is so crucial to his ministry because it proves that he was divine, that he was the prophesied Messiah, the king. John didn't work any miracles. He had a bunch of people that were following him. John the Baptist never performed a miracle, a sign or a wonder, but Jesus does to prove that he was divine. Because even people like John the Baptist questioned whether it was true. Could it really be that the Messiah is finally here? Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 through 6. And now John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. He sent word. Remember, he had already baptized Jesus and pointed him out as a Messiah. But he sent word to his disciples and said, Are you the one who is coming? Or shall we look for another? 
And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the, de- and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The miracles of Christ prove that he is who he says he is. And his fame spread. Verse 24, his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from, the, and from beyond the Jordan. Great multitudes of people began following Jesus. Jesus is preaching and teaching and doing these signs and, and, and wonders, proving that he is who he says he is. And do you know who is with him? the disciples. Remember what Jesus had said to them, I will make you fishers of men. And now here they were watching Jesus in action, watching him throw out his net and catch an impossible number of people. And soon he will pass on the ministry to them. In Acts 1, Verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples as he's ascending, as he's leaving earth, he's ascending into heaven, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. One thing is for sure, guys. Christ is very clear about the task of those who are followers of him. All who are followers of Jesus Christ are to be fishers of men. It's not a special command just to the 12 disciples, but a great commission given to the whole church. All citizens of the kingdom are to be ambassadors for the king. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 through 20, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. What is that? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And you know what's cool is that God promises to make it happen. It's not dependent on you and me. He promises to use his church to reach the whole world with his message. And this gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24, 14, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And we get a glimpse of what it's going to look like in Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And as I close here, I want to just
reflect. I have three points of reflection as we close out here, as my time is coming to an end. Um, number one, that Christ didn't come to call the righteous, but the sick. Jesus came to offer salvation, forgiveness, and healing to those who recognize their spiritual need and acknowledge their sin. He came to call sinners to repentance and provide them with opportunity for reconciliation with God. Number two, Christ doesn't search for the prominent, but the repentant. Even as believers, we can forget this truth. Even Samuel in the search for the beginning of the bloodline of Jesus as king. The search for David. In 1 Samuel 16, 6-7, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not a, what man sees. Man looks on the inward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then third, Christ's followers are all to be fishers of men. The message is not limited to the original disciples, but it's a call to all Christians to actively engage in sharing the message of Jesus Christ and make disciples. As it says in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just pray that your word continues to change us, that our minds continue to change as a result of learning and growing in your word, God. I pray that you would have your work in us, that we would do as you commanded as, as the church to glorify you and to make your glory known among the nations, God. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast, King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.